Let's pray together. Our great God and our Father, all that we are, all that we have, is defined now because of your great mercy to us by who you are. If we want to know who we are, we find that we are your people. If we want to know what it means to be your people, it drives us to see who you are as the Lord, as the shepherd, as the king, as the redeemer, the creator. All that we are, all that we have is connected back to who you are. The fact that we are your people drives us back to see that that's because you chose us in Christ before the world was was created. That our future, our eternal destiny is rooted in your eternal love. If we want to understand the circumstances of our life, it drives us back to remember that you're the God who calls light out of darkness and who makes the world out of nothing, who orders it, who controls it, who maintains it. You're the God who directs our lives. You're the God who sets in motion every circumstance that we face, every question that we have is resolved in your mind because it comes from your decree. Lord, everything that we are, everything that we have is rooted in who you are. Lord, as I look out on these people and wonder in my own mind what you're doing, what are your purposes with each of the lives that are here, each heart, each mind, each soul that's here in this room, children that are in the nurseries, Lord, only you know. But Lord, we've confessed this morning that we believe in the Holy Spirit that we believe that you're at work, that you're bringing to life those who were once dead. Perhaps even this morning, there will be births in this room. And Lord, there will be surgery taking place in this room. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would come in and do what no man can do. That you would uh, expose, that you would make incisions, that you would raised to life, that you would do whatever you are pleased to do. So, Lord, we ask this in the name of Christ, the Lord, risen from the dead, reigning, coming again, and we ask it in him. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you who um, haven't been here the last couple of weeks... Uh, This is our our third week uh, in a brief sermon series on uh, the church, and if you have to state a reason for doing that, uh, I think we have two primary reasons in mind. One is uh, that we are in this season of nominating, receiving nominations for elders and deacons, very important time in the life of our church, as, as Hal encouraged us to consider earlier. And so it's good for us to to listen together, to think together about what God says about elders, about deacons, about church members, about the church. And then secondly, I would echo his comment earlier that we live in a period of time when the, the view of the church, not just on the part of those who are outside the church, but on the part of Christians inside the church has been declining. And we want to lean against that. We want to prop up our view of the church, 
and to say that to belong to Jesus Christ is to belong to his church, to be committedly, joyfully involved in his, in his body. Now, last week we saw from Ephesians 5 that Jesus loves his church. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so Jesus Christ loves his church. And if we love Christ, we are to love his church. And we also saw last week that Jesus is the head and the king. He rules over his church. He is our our head, our authority. And yet, as Hal was preaching the week before last from Ephesians 4, we saw that this Jesus who reigns over us as the king also has given gifts to his church. And he gives gifts to men, among other things, to do the work of elders and of deacons so that, why? So that the church is built up in every way into maturity so that we're not perpetually spiritual adolescents, but we grow up, as Paul says, into mature manhood. We grow up into Christian adulthood under the authority of Christ, under his care, but he expresses his care through men that he gives to you as elders and deacons. I think it's a wonderful way for you to think of the the present ministry of Jesus Christ. He is not far away from you. He is not distant or remote from his church. But he comes to you in the lips and the hands and the, the actions of your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, who speaks the truth of the gospel to you, who encourages you, who comforts you, who prays for you. And he certainly comes to you in elders and deacons as they represent the Lord Jesus Christ very directly uh, in the ongoing life of the church. So when we come to officer nominations, what we're doing is recognizing the men that Jesus has gifted and called to represent him in the church, to serve in his name and, and with his authority. But if you're going to choose elders and deacons to lead you, to lead the church, you certainly need to know what kind of men you should be looking for. You should know very clearly in your mind what an elder is called to do. You should have very clearly in your, in your understanding what a deacon functions to do in the life of the local church. You should have in your mind all the things that the Bible says about what kind of men those men should be in terms of their character. Because otherwise you won't be looking at the kind of men that God wants you to look for. Your qualifications will... As in the days of of David, your qualifications will be exterior when God is looking for a different kind of man. And so we need to be sure that we're listening to what the Lord says. And 1 Peter 5, when it comes to elders, uh, is a very, very helpful place for us to look. So I want us to give our attention now to the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 5, uh, we'll just look at the first five verses there. This is God's word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, before we really dive into this passage and talk about elders and the church, I think it's important, very important for us to understand, for you to appreciate the context here. Peter is writing uh, to not one particular church, but to Christians who are scattered throughout a region because of persecution that has kicked up in the Roman Empire. And they've been driven from Jerusalem out into all these various regions, and they're scattered. He addresses the letter to the scattered exiles. He's writing then to Christians who have realized in a very powerful way that this world is not a very hospitable place for Christians. And Peter is writing to them uh, in such a way as to help them, and you see this at the very end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 12, that whatever comes at them, whatever trials come their way, whatever turbulence they face in this life, they would be able, as Peter says, to stand firm in the true grace of God. Peter wants them, we want you, we want ourselves as believers in this world to be able to stand firm in God's grace. Not to be tossed around, not to waver, not to fall apart, but to stand because we stand in the grace of God in Christ. Now that that comes as a very important message for you this morning, just as thinking about the context of the letter is a sermon in itself. If you're a Christian, if you want to stand firm in Christ, if you want to bear fruit for the Lord, to honor Him, to, to be a witness for Him in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in the community, then the only way for that to happen is for you to stand firm in the true grace of God. To remember that what you are is bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious possession of God, the church of the Lord Jesus being built up for His name. That's what Peter says about you elsewhere in this letter. Now, here's what I think is significant. This is the context in which he talks about elders. He talks about the government of the church, about elders, as he's writing to a suffering group of Christians, a suffering, persecuted church. Now, I think that's very important. Now, here's here's how I want to, here's how I'm thinking about that. Any number of you, could be sitting, let me put it another way, a few of you, a a very small number of you might be sitting there thinking, this is really, I love sermons on church government and eldership. This is fantastic. (laughs) I've been waiting for someone. A large number of you might might sit here and think, okay, I mean, it's the Bible. I know this is important. I should know this stuff. But, you know, really? Elders? Church government? I actually think that if we, if we think about what, not only what Peter's saying, but the context in which he's saying it is a very powerful antidote to that. Because here's what Peter doesn't do. He doesn't say, you know, I really would like to write, he's writing his letter, he's sitting thinking, I really would like to talk to them about elders. Boy, those are important. They, I think they really, but they've got a lot going on right now. They're being persecuted. They're fearing for their life. We can, we'll get to that later. He doesn't do that. In the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their struggles, he's he's concerned for them that they would fall away, that they would lose heart. And he wants to talk to them in a really brief letter. He actually wants to talk to them about elders, about how elders should respond to the flock and about how the flock should look at their elders. I I think that's very telling. 
Because I think what it says to us is that if we're going to survive, not only do we need the church, but we need godly, gifted elders. I think that's a conclusion we have to reach based on what Peter's doing here. So, I hope that this seems more interesting to you than it maybe did a few minutes ago. But whether it seems that way or not, this really, I think we have to say, is extremely crucial and very practical for us as a church. Now, this is what we need to look at today. I want to do it from three perspectives and ask three questions. The first question is this. Where will will we find the strength to stand in grace? In other words, what is the context in which the Christian life has to be worked out? I want you to look again at verse 1, just the first part of it. So I exhort the elders among you. So I exhort the elders among you. On the heels of a passage about suffering, back in chapter 4, Peter turns his attention here to the care of believers for one another in the church. And the first thing I want you to consider is something you've heard before, even you've heard it before this morning, but here it is again. Christianity is not merely an individual endeavor. To be a Christian is to embrace the priority of the church. To be a Christian is a churchly thing. This is the context. And by this, I mean, sure, sure, this room. Can you hope to be absent from this room on Sunday mornings on a regular basis and grow in Christ? No, you can't. But certainly it's bigger than this room, this worship service. It's relationships together. It's love for one another. It's the mutuality of the Christian life that happens in the body of Christ. God brought you together, not just with Christ, but knit you together in him with the people sitting around you who belong to him for a purpose. God brought you not just to a church, but this church. God surrounded you not just by some other Christian people, but these Christian people. And this is the context in which you will stand. Apart from this context, then, you will not stand in the grace of God. This is where you'll experience it. You you hear the word together. We sit under it together. We come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper together. We consider what it means to be the people of God together. We weep together. We rejoice together. We encourage one another. We rebuke one another. We repent together. We seek Christ together. So the context in which we're going to stand is the church. And in that church, Peter says, there are elders among you. Now, he's going to talk about the function of elders, but just notice significantly, they're among you. The shepherds are also sheep. But in that context of Christian community in the church, what we're beginning to see is that the Scripture also wants us to submit to those elders, to obey them, to follow them. Now, how we'll touch upon this in a few weeks, so I'm not going to deal with it except to just point out Hebrews 13. Verse 17, also a letter, importantly, written to people who are, apparently, some of them need to be warned about falling away, about turning back. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, there's a great quote uh, referred last week to a book called The Enduring Community, written by a couple of uh, RUF campus ministers um, uh, about the church. And I want to read another quote uh, to you from them this week. 
Here's what they say. What we're thinking is the context of your Christian life is the church under the elders. That's how you stand in grace. Though perhaps a difficult truth to embrace, the elders have a God-given authority in regard to a member's spiritual oversight. And this authority is to be received with a submissive and willing attitude. Simply put, it means that the decisions of the elders are not mere suggestions. They're something to be obeyed. Now, I wonder how you respond to that. But here's the question. How well do you value the organized, institutional, local, visible church with government, with elders, with worship, with liturgy, with teaching, with people? How highly do you value that? That's the first question. That's the context for your Christian life. And at least what Peter is implying is if you stray from this God-given structure, the church, if you sort of interact loosely, you kind of have this porous relationship with the church where you come and you go, and yeah, I think they've been around, but quite so. If that's the way you live in the church, only at the points you choose, only at the depth you choose, boy, there's a, you're, you're really in danger of falling because we stand in grace together. That's the context. Now, why exactly is this so? And that's where Peter explores uh, further here in this passage. Why will we grow? Why will you grow? Why will I grow in the church, not outside of it? Not, on the, not beside it, but in it. Why is that the case? It's because it's only in the church that you find these men that are called and gifted by Christ to be your shepherds, to tend after you, to care for you. That's only in the church. These are the elders of the church who are called, you see in this passage, verses 1 and 2, let me read them again, to shepherd you. I exhort the elders among you, and then Peter, what does he call himself? A fellow elder. He's also an apostle, but he doesn't address them in that way. A fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. This is Peter's charge to all of us who are elders here at Redeemer already. This is also his charge, his instruction to us as a congregation as we look at men who might be qualified and called to be elders. This is the calling of any man who would be an elder. Love Jesus Christ by feeding his sheep and exercising oversight over his sheep. That's what an elder does. That's who an elder is. Now, I, you cannot help but think in this connection of Peter's meeting with Jesus that we read about in John 21, Peter had bitterly wept because he had betrayed the Lord Jesus. He had denied the Lord Jesus, rather, violently with curses. No, I don't know this man. And Jesus, we read in Luke, Jesus looks across the courtyard and makes eye contact with Peter after he's denied his Lord three times. And Peter runs away and weeps bitterly. What would it have been like? Can you imagine what that would have been like to be Peter? To have 
had the Lord's eyes catch yours after you had just done that? And then to go through the process of his trial, his beating, his crucifixion, his burial. And then the Lord appears again after his resurrection. And then we read this beautiful account in John 21 on the beach. And Peter and others are out fishing. Back to doing what they were doing before. And Jesus appears on the beach. And he cooks breakfast for them. Cooks fish for them. Brings them to himself to feed them. And you remember the exchange. Jesus asks Peter three times this painful, searching question. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, how many times do I have to say, yes, I love you. What does Jesus tell Peter? Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Peter came after his great fall to know the mercy of Jesus Christ in a way that set before him his calling to feed the lambs of Christ, to shepherd God's flock. And so Peter says, my my fellow elders, my brother elders, shepherd the flock of God that's under your care. One of the great images that we find here is that elders then are under shepherds, And Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. He's the elder, the overseer, the one who cares for you. But he uses people to do that. Isn't that remarkable? Do you stop to think about the fact that Jesus Christ cares for you if you're his child? He cares for you and he is intent on using other people to do that. To, to deliver his grace and mercy and help to you through another sinner who needs that same grace. That's always God's pattern. And especially in the church, he's going to be using elders for that. And we read the, psalm, the, the 23rd Psalm earlier. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you can say, you can say forever, the Lord is my shepherd. There's a great old hymn for children, I am Jesus' little lamb. Maybe some of you know that. Every Christian can say that. I am Jesus' little lamb. He is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He will take care of me. And he will do that through the elders of his church. That's what's happening. That's actually what's happening in some mysterious, odd, very ordinary way right now. When the Bible's read, when we preach the word to you, when we teach you the word, when we pray with you, come alongside you, comfort you, encourage you, when your friends in Christ come along. That's what's happening. Jesus is tending to you. He's shepherding you. Calls you his little flock. Now, I don't know if you realize this. I'm sure a lot of you do. You realize it's not that flattering to be called a sheep, right? In case you have this kind of romantic, idealized, oh, sheep are so cute and furry and woolly and be great to be a shepherd you're outside I mean, it's to be a sheep it's basic part of it is to say it's not the whole picture but part of it is to say you don't know what you're doing you, you sheep do not shepherd themselves they're not intelligent enough they're not strong enough they're not agile enough they don't it's a picture of weakness and need And what the Lord Jesus is teaching here in his word 
is that sheep wander, they get stuck, they get confused, they're easily separated from one another, they're easily preyed upon, and so forth. You see that happen in your life? You see that happen in the church? But Jesus, the good shepherd, sends under-shepherds into our lives, into your life, and it's because he loves you. So think about this, this process of nominating elders as a process of recognizing the love of Jesus for our church. Of identifying in flesh and blood the loving gifts of the Lord Jesus to us. This is a time of celebration, of, of recognition of just the amazing love of, of Christ for us. And he wants you to see his love in the elders as they minister to you. So you need to think about elders as shepherds of God's people, overseeing, feeding, leading, teaching, protecting, helping. But how are they to do this? Look at what Peter says. What attitudes and mindset should characterize the elders as they do this? Look at at verse uh, 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain. Elders were in the early church sometimes paid for their work. Peter says that's not a good motive. But eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It's very simple here, isn't it? Imitating the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly, 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 freely gave his life for the sheep. No one... There was no external force that forced Jesus against his will to leave heaven to come and live and die for you. He willingly did that, willingly pursuing his sheep, even while they're kicking and fighting against him. And so the elders should imitate the good shepherd by willingly pursuing the sheep, eagerly serving them. And you notice not domineering over those in your charge, not being heavy-handed, not being... Tyrants, not abusing their authority, but being an example of the love of Christ to the sheep, to see it as a privilege. What what about this? Imagine this. Imagine in a real-life scenario, you saw a shepherd, you knew a shepherd, an actual shepherd, who would only care for his sheep when somebody was looking or made him do it. What would you conclude about him? Here's what Jesus concludes about that shepherd. He's a hireling, not a shepherd. He's in it for the money. He's in it for the stability. He's in it because he can't find anything else to do. But he's not a lover of the sheep. The Bible calls that man a hireling. Being a faithful elder is very costly in all kinds of ways, but Peter is saying that the elder, the shepherd of God's flock, gladly endures these things for the sake of Christ and the church. Why? Because he's tasted that work of Christ in his own life. He's been pursued himself. And then Peter says an elder shouldn't serve for shameful gain. But an elder is to be an overseer. What about some of you who may be thinking about being an elder, or maybe some of us who are elders, and we're tempted with all kinds of false motives. We want people to recognize us. We We want to be in control. We want to be able to shape things the way we want to shape them. Some churches, there's a status that comes with that. We've tried to communicate leadership at Redeemer in a way that the leaders see themselves at the bottom 
Yes, with God-given authority, but it's authority given to serve, to build up, to encourage, not to domineer. And so Peter says elders are to be overseers. Back in chapter 2, he calls Jesus the overseer of our souls, the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. You see the connections? As you're thinking about who might be elders here, or as we elders are thinking, Lord, search us, help us to examine ourselves carefully. Jesus is the servant guardian of his flock. And shepherds, elders are to be servant guardians of his flock, to care for his sheep as he cares for us, as he cares for his sheep. Now, if a man's going to do that, then he needs to be a godly man, a mature Christian man. He needs to have a man of... He needs to be a man of mature Christian character, a man whose life is a good example to follow, right? And that's why the scriptures uh, are very clear about their requirements. And as you take time to look at these nomination forms, we've taken care to print for you from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and from Titus chapter 1 what God says about elders and deacons. Precisely because ordinarily the maturity of a congregation will not exceed the maturity of its leaders. And so we need to seek leaders, elders, deacons who are mature, godly men. It's very interesting if you read through those qualifications, which we want you to do. Do it several times, prayerfully. Think about it carefully. There are comments about what elders ought to be able to do. Teach, defend the faith, discern truth from error. But overwhelmingly, you know what's required? Clear, godly Christian character. We need godly men to lead the church. And so as you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, you find, you find these various examples. Okay, and I want to read these to you for a reason. Because if you're going to have elders over you in the Lord who have authority that you're supposed to obey and submit to, you ought to be really careful, shouldn't you? Think about getting married. A woman ought to be very careful, the man she marries. She ought to have high standards. A Christian woman ought to have high standards for a husband, precisely because of what God says about marriage. You're going to marry some guy who's going to be a tyrant? He's going to be cruel? He's going to be dismissive? He's going to be whatever? No, you're going to choose very wise. In the same way, similar way, a church should choose their elders very carefully. So what does Paul say in 1 Timothy? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul says similar things with some changes in Titus chapter 1. The point is we need to look for these biblical qualifications for elders. God's concerned with a man's character. Now, look at your nomination forms later. 
there's some very helpful comments to help you think about what these mean. But I want to say this. I think this is a corrective. It's easy to read those requirements and say, well, we all know that no one lives up to that. So what we're really looking for is a man who knows he doesn't live up to that, but he's looking to Christ. And certainly we want those things, right? We want men who are humble enough to know I don't hit that, those targets with perfection. I need the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. I need the work of the Holy Spirit. I need humility. I need change. But if God's making a man an elder or if he's making a man a deacon, this is the kind of man he's making. So even though these gifts, these qualifications won't be there perfectly, they will be there. They must be there because this is the kind of man that God makes to be an elder. And every elder he makes and provides for us will be a man kind of like the one described there in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And so that's who you look for. Let me say this. As you think about this process, you want to look for men who are already like this, who who are already showing this kind of character, who are already serving in these ways. Now, let me ask a couple of questions and then I I want to wrap this up. If you think God may be calling you to be an elder, and you notice Paul says, if, you, if you're desiring to be an elder, that's a good thing. That's a good desire. You should have godly, if you're, if you're a, a, a man in this church, a member of this church, you should have some godly ambition for service in God's kingdom and in his church. God, what a blessed thing this would be to shepherd your people like this. Would you use me this way? I, I don't know, but help me to be that kind of man. Ask God for that. Pray to him about that. But if you think God may be calling you to be an elder, let me just ask you these questions. Do you love Jesus Christ? Is there a clear love for Christ in your life? Do you love his sheep? Do you feel a burden to care for them? Do you feel gripped by compassion for the people of God? Do you feel gripped by a desire to see the lost come to know Christ and shepherded and discipled, built up in Christ. A shepherd must really love the sheep. And I, I can't look at this passage without putting myself and the rest of us elders under the microscope too. How does this help us to reflect upon our love for the sheep? How are we doing at modeling the servant love of Christ for the sheep? Is Christ's love spilling over? Where we've, where we've failed. And folks, you're going to see your elders fail. And where we fail, we go back to the cross of Christ where his blood was shed. The blood of the overseer of our souls was shed to cleanse us, to strengthen us, to renew us, to strengthen our love for him and for his sheep so that we can go back out. So that is the, that's the reason why life in the church is so crucial, because here are the shepherds of your souls. Now, this may change the way some of you think about the whole Christian life and the church and elders and everything. Maybe some of you have never, ever, ever, ever in your life prayed for an elder, prayed for a minister, really pled with God for his blessing for those men. Shouldn't you do that? Maybe some of us have never really viewed the church as, here's this room full of the sheep of the Lord, who he loves, who he bought with his own blood. Well, what environment, last question I want to ask, we'll draw this to a close here. 
what environment has to be in place for this to happen? What has to be the culture of the church for this to take place? I think Peter gives us two answers to that question. One, in verse 5, I think he shows us that there needs to be, very clearly shows us, there needs to be a culture of humility, an environment, an atmosphere of humility. Notice what he says. He's been talking to the elders, and now he says, hey, all of you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Something every one of us is called to apply. It's very striking the way Peter puts this. He uses language that was used to describe a servant tying on his apron as he prepared for service. He says, all of you, believers in Christ, tie on your aprons and prepare for service. Clothe yourselves with humility. Dress yourselves like servants. In other words, if we're going to stand firm in the grace of God then we need to all start acting like the servants that we're called to be, following the pattern of Christ. What will advance the ministry of the church? You strap on your apron. Look for needs. Seek God's grace to help you to meet them. A student is never greater than his teacher. Servant's never greater than his master. And our master saved us by putting on the garments of a servant clothing himself with humility, enduring humiliation, even death on a cross. So where does humility come from? How do you clothe yourself with humility? John Owen, great pastor from the 1600s, said it happens in two ways. One, a due consideration of God and then of yourself. And he doesn't mean once or twice or five times, but a lifetime. He goes on and says, Of God in His greatness, glory, holiness, power, majesty, and authority. If that's not how you're seeing God this morning, then you're not a humble person. If you want to be a humble person, it begins by seeing God this way. It begins by waking up to reality. To see the Lord in His greatness. To have a due consideration of who He is. And then secondly, of yourself. In your, as he says in his antiquated language, mean, abject, and sinful condition. There is where a humble person is made. A due consideration of God. A due consideration of of yourself. And you know what happens then? It's what's already happening in so many of your lives is that you're serving, you're praising God, you're meeting the needs of others because you've seen who God is, you've seen who you are. So we need a culture of humility. Second, a culture of hope. Peter says he's a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the going-to-be-revealed glory. Peter's a man who's standing on his tiptoes. Peter's a man who's sitting on the edge of his seat because he knows that the day is coming when Jesus Christ is returning in his glory to reveal his glory to his people. And so he's energized. He's ready. He's ready to work. And he says, when the chief shepherd appears, 
When the chief shepherd appears, you elders, he says, will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter's directing the elders of the church toward the day when they will receive honor from the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. And at the same time, he's pointing all of us to the day and to the great joy that awaits us on that day when our Savior returns and we are with him in his heavenly kingdom. Now, what's Peter doing right here? So pull all of this together. He's urging us to keep the proper perspective on this life by keeping your eyes on the life to come and on the Savior who's coming. Because in this life, you, you struggle, don't you? There's many trials. And I don't begin to know how many different kinds of those trials there are in this room. But there are many trials, and there's suffering, and there's hardship, and there are joys, and there are great sorrows. But we will stand together in the grace of God. We will submit and follow our elders that God gives us, the shepherd leaders of the church. We will love one another. We'll be humble when we remember that the chief shepherd is going to appear and that he's going to appear for his sheep that he's going to take us out of the church militant. You know, the church militant, we're fighting, we're at war. He's going to take us out of the church militant and bring us into the joys of the church triumphant. And on that day, the sheep will all be sheep, and there will be one shepherd, and we will all fall down at his feet. And whatever crowns he might give, we will give them to him. And we'll adore him and we'll worship him and we'll begin to see what he, some of what he was doing for us all along. And Peter says, you keep your eye on that day. You think about that shepherd as we stand together in the church in the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great care for us. We thank you that you care for us even now as we come to this table and gather ourselves around it to meet with you to be fed by you, to be nourished by you. Oh, Lord, our, our good shepherd, we, we believe that because you are our shepherd, we will not want, we will not lack for anything that we need. We will want things that we don't need. We will think we need things that we really don't. We will grumble, we will kick, we will wander, we will stray, we will be confused. And yet, Lord, you never change. You are faithful and good. Lead us on, we pray. And give to us humble hearts, hopeful hearts, and give to us uh, men after your own heart to lead us as our under-shepherds. In Jesus' name, amen.